RPC Radio. Welcome to Unspoken Giants, international financial institutions tackling the cancer of corruption. Brought to you by RPC. of nine international financial institutions whose activities span the globe. Unspoken Giants focuses on the multifaceted approach to tackling fraud and corruption globally, while achieving the ambitions of these titans of finance to alleviate poverty, strengthen economy and eliminate disease. institutions and multilateral development banks, we speak to representatives of these institutions to discuss how funding recipients can avoid pitfalls, engage with institutions and handle allegations of sanctionable or prohibited practices. In this episode we are focusing on the World Bank and with us we have Jameson Smith, the World Bank's Chief Suspension and Debarment Officer. Also on the panel today, as with other episodes, we have Alex Haynes, a barrister at Outer Temple Chambers. Alex has a very internationally focused practice, including relevantly having acted in matters involving the sanctioning bodies of various development banks. Welcome to you both, and thank you for joining me today to explain more about the World Bank to our listeners. Thanks, Alice. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Jamie, you were appointed to lead the Office of Suspension and Debarment in 2018, having joined the World Bank as what I'm going to refer to as a poacher turned gamekeeper, although some may object to the terminology. Before joining the World Bank in 2010, you worked at a couple of law firms in white-collar crime and regulatory investigations. What drew you to your role in the World Bank? I had worked in a few law firms in Washington, D.C. before I joined the bank for about nine years, working on general white-collar defense work. And then, like a lot of young attorneys, I eventually found my place in around 2005 or so, working on Foreign Corrupt Practices Act investigations and compliance work, working for a number of clients in helping them navigate their way through allegations of paying bribes overseas and helping them put in place compliance programs to mitigate that. I had a great experience. I found the work absolutely fascinating, as maybe a lot of our listeners do, and very eye-opening as well. <laughs> and I got to travel a lot, visit a lot of countries, and have experience in finding out what is going on in those countries in this area. After a little while, I was thinking of getting other experiences outside of the law firm area. And this opportunity to work as a senior counsel in the office that I now head came up and I got very excited about what the World Bank is doing in this area. And with the reach that the World Bank has as the world's biggest multilateral development bank, I thought it was a great opportunity to be able to take it to the next level of the work that I'd been doing. The sanction system, which we'll talk about in detail today, really had just just gotten off the ground. So it was an exciting time to join. I worked as a senior counsel in the Office of Suspension and Debarment for about seven years. And then I became the Chief Suspension and Debarment Officer a few years ago. Jamie, you just mentioned that you got really excited about what the World Bank does. What does the World Bank do? 
for those of you who aren't as familiar with it as perhaps others are, the World Bank's the world's largest multilateral development bank, founded in 1944 at the end of World War II. We are owned by 189 member countries, so that's almost every country in the world. The World Bank now has two twin goals. The first is to end extreme poverty, which is to lower the share of the global population that's living on less than $2 a day from 21% down to hopefully only 3% of the world's population by 2030. And our other goal is to promote shared prosperity, which is to increase the incomes of the bottom 40% of the global population. Like everyone who works at the bank, I really truly believe in those twin goals. On our operational side, the 2020 fiscal year, the World Bank Group put out $77 billion worth of financing, which was an increase of about 18 to $20 billion from the year before, with a lot of that going towards COVID relief to all sorts of programs around the world, from giant infrastructure projects, building dams, highways, etc., to increasing capacity in different governmental institutions around the world, to building schools. There's just all sorts of work going on that's very exciting. The World Bank Group is made up of four institutions the International Bank of Reconstruction and Development, IBRD, that gives low-interest loans to middle-income countries around the world. The International Development Association, IDA, that gives no-interest loans or grants to the lower-income countries around the world. International Finance Corporation, which is our private sector arm, working on investments partnering with private sector entities. And then MIGA, M-I-G-A, the Multilateral Investment Guarantee Agency, that works on political risk insurance issues. So those four entities make up the World Bank Group. Jamie, just then you mentioned the operational arm of the World Bank Group. Where do you fit within that group? Perhaps unsurprisingly, with $77 billion of financing out there in a year, there are bad actors who want to get their hands on some of that money. So the way our financing works generally will be that the World Bank comes to an agreement with a borrower country, and then the borrower country will implement the project. So through that implementation process, through the procurement process of that borrower country putting out bids for contracts, or through the execution of those contracts, there are a number of touch points, essentially, where bad actors could engage in fraud, corruption, collusion, and other misconduct. And World Bank has, to be frank, this is a relatively recent development over the last 25 years or so, but the World Bank has decided that through the World Bank Articles of Agreement that all of our member countries, when they join on, they agree to, those Articles of Agreement give a fiduciary responsibility to the bank to make sure that the funds are used for their intended purposes. So from that back Background about 25 years ago or so, the bank put in place a sanction system involving an investigative authority and then an internal adjudicative system to protect those funds by going after third parties that may have engaged in fraud or corruption on World Bank finance projects, and then perhaps being able to sanction those companies after a process that involves due process and the right to appeal, etc. And my office, including me specifically, I am one part of that process. Jamie, what part does your office play in this process? My office is the first tier of our sanction system. It probably makes sense to talk about the investigative group first because my office is entirely input-driven from the investigative authority. So our investigative group is the Integrity Vice Presidency, which amongst the panoply of acronyms that we use at the World Bank, everyone refers to the Integrity Vice Presidency as INT. And INT 
is a, a relatively large group of over 100 staff, many of them investigative professionals who have been investigators in their home countries, perhaps, as well as a number of attorneys, as well as folks who are risk specialists and other things like that. They receive allegations of sanctional misconduct on our projects around the world. We have an annual report of the sanctions system at the World Bank, which comes out every year. It's a joint annual report from our different sanctioning entities, including INT. In there, they will point out that they get over a thousand accusations per year. Of course, with even a relatively large group, cannot go after every single accusation. And they will triage to open up investigations in a smaller amount of that and then eventually bring a sanction cases. When they think that they have sufficient evidence for a sanctionable practice, INT will bring a sanctions case to my office, the Office of Suspension and Debarment. Sufficient evidence in our system means more likely than not. It is not a criminal standard. We're not putting anyone in jail, and we certainly are not a criminal authority. So the standard of review is more likely than not, essentially 51%. So what they will submit to my office, they call it a statement of accusations and evidence. It looks like a criminal complaint, perhaps, or a debarment complaint in other contexts, as well as all of the supporting evidence. So all the supporting evidence can be interviews with witnesses, documentation of fraud, all sorts of correspondence that INT may engage in in doing their investigation. And of course, depending on the complexity of the case, we might be talking about 10 or 12 pieces of evidence, or we might be talking about binders and binders full of hundreds of pieces of evidence. When they submit the case to my office, my office will review the case and make a determination whether or not there is sufficient evidence. And again, we are applying a more likely than not standard. When my office makes that decision, we will write up a decision, but that is not public. That only goes back to INT and lets them know whether or not we have decided if there was sufficient evidence on all of their claims. Because there can be more than one claim in a case. There might be an accusation of corruption and an accusation of fraud, and there might be an accusation against two companies as well as a person. So my office will review all of those accusations and let INT know what my decision is. If there is a decision on one or more claims, this happens in about one third of the cases, I will say there's sufficient evidence on some claims, but not on others. In that situation, INT has to remove the claims where there is insufficient evidence and resubmit the case. When the case is resubmitted or if there's not a need to resubmit and it was entirely successful at first, my office will then issue the case to the respondent company. We call the company or the individual the respondent. When we issue that case, we give the company what we call a notice of sanctions proceedings, which explains the system to them and their rights to challenge any decision that's been made. We provide INT statement of accusations and evidence, and we provide all of the actual evidence to the respondent. And we explain the process and that they have a right to appeal my initial decision as well as my recommendation for a sanction, which usually involves a period of debarment. And at that point, the respondent has the ability to first submit an explanation to my office, which is kind of an appeals light where they can try to get me to change my mind about either the sufficiency of the evidence overall for the claim or try to get a lower sanction by providing mitigating evidence that I may not have seen already. If they are not successful at getting the case completely thrown out, which has happened on a few occasions, I will see new evidence and decide that there is not sufficient evidence at this point, but it's relatively rare. So if they are still subject to a sanction after submitting the explanation, they can appeal to the second tier. 
So the second tier is our World Bank Group Sanctions Board. There is a secretariat, which is headed by Juliana Dunham Irving, who is a World Bank attorney with many years of experience in this area. And she has a staff as well. And they will essentially review the case and provide summaries and any information that is needed for the actual World Bank Group Sanctions Board members who are totally external. I am a bank staff member making my decision, but I make my decision completely independently. No one can tell me what to do. No one can tell me how to decide anything, but I am bank staff. At the sanctions board, at the second tier of review, the sanctions board members are totally independent and in that they are not bank staff members. They are made up a very eclectic group with lots of experience. A lot of them are retired judges. Many of them have multilateral development bank experience that they bring to the table. They will review the case totally de novo. So they are not bound in any way at all by what I have decided at the first tier. And they will review the case if it is appealed and make a recommendation. And their decision is public. The decisions of the sanctions board can be found on our website. One thing to keep in mind is that only one third of the cases are actually appealed to the sanctions board. About two thirds of the time, the company will accept the recommendations that are made at the first year. Jamie has described quite a complicated system there. What is your experience of how respondent companies interact with that system? Would this be the first time many companies have heard of a Suspension and Debarment Officer, or SDO? After hearing Jamie speak, you can imagine the response and reaction to receiving a notice from the SDO. And there are, I think, three aspects to this, Sarah, that make it feel particularly inaccessible for respondents. Uh, this is the, the, the big picture approach, if you like, of why this area is so little known and why those respondents react the way that they do. So firstly, I think what's really important to remember is this is a relatively new system. Notwithstanding the Bretton Woods institutions of which the World Bank Group was part, uh, when they emerged from the conference in New Hampshire in 1944, the World Bank only introduced a formal sanctions regime half a century later. So that means we've hardly had two decades of this system. And bear in mind, the World Bank operates the oldest sanctions system of all the MDBs. So you're looking at not much more than two decades. Now, secondly, within those 20 or so years, the systems involve, evolved at an impressive pace. So in 1998, through the Operation Manual, the World Bank's Sanctions Committee, as it was then called, was established to review sanctions cases against firms and against individuals suspected of engaging in misconduct. But to understand the extent of the evolution of this system in such a short space of time, in 1998, so that sanctions committee made recommendations to the World Bank president. So the World Bank's president made final decision on any given case. You can imagine the, the due process criticisms that were leveled at that system. And only six years later, the sanctions board, as we now know, consisting of, of a majority of external members, replaced the sanctions committee. So there's quite a, an aggressive evolution there within a very short period of time. And 10 years ago, the sanctions guidelines were published, thereby increasing transparency 
so respondent companies could see what they would be likely to receive in terms of sanctions based on the allegations if they were proved. And in 2012, the Sanctions Board began to publish the full text of the decision. So Jamie's referred to publication, which was a big step, because again, increasing transparency within the system. And since 2016, the Sanctions Board membership consists exclusively of external members. So within less than 20 years, we've gone from a, an internal body that makes representations and recommendations to the president to what is, in essence, a judicial body comprised of lawyers, ex-judges or lawyers, who sit externally from the World Bank and who make binding decisions. The last point is that notwithstanding the similarities across the MDB systems as a whole, there are a number of differences. So that means that even if a respondent or an individual or a lawyer or anybody with an interest in this area, if that person or entity feels that they have experience of a particular and specific MDB, the reality is that the World Bank might approach things differently and the sanctions procedures will be different in any event. So it's very difficult to have a detailed knowledge of the system as a whole because each institution operates a different framework. How the systems at the different MDBs, but particularly at the World Bank, obviously, which I know best, have changed over the years is what drew me to the bank at first. And one of the most interesting areas of working in it is that because it is relatively new and because it is an administrative system, there is the ability to make changes when needed. Sometimes those changes are a little difficult to get everyone to agree to, but that ability to make changes over the years is something that I think is interesting, but also very helpful to all parties, including external stakeholders. Jamie, what does a sanctionable practice mean in the context of a multilateral development bank? Sanctionable practice means a very specific thing at the different MDBs, particularly the World Bank. When folks hear sanctions, and this definitely happens to me when I'm giving presentations, etc., folks hear the word sanctions and they might think economic sanctions in the UN context and things like that. But what we're talking about here is misconduct that can occur related to a World Bank finance. And the five sanctionable practices that we have at the World Bank, four of which are identical to the definitions of sanctionable practices at other MDBs that have agreed to our cross-debarment agreement, fraudulent practice, corrupt practice, collusive practice, and coercive practice. Now, we also have obstructive practice, which is similar to the definition of obstructive practice at some of the other MDBs, but is a bit different. So we do not cross-debar for obstructive practice. Fraudulent practice is any act or omission, including a misrepresentation, that knowingly or recklessly misleads or attempts to mislead a party to obtain a financial or other benefit or to avoid an obligation. That is probably similar to what the definition of fraud is under various national systems. The way it breaks down since the two-tier system went into place in 2007, about 80% of our cases involve fraud, about 20% involve corruption, about 12% involve collusion, about 5% involve obstruction, and coercion is only about 1%. And those numbers equal over 100% because cases can involve more than one sexual practice, of course. I think it 
probably makes sense when you think about it in that made it more common for there to be fraud on a World Bank financing than some of the other ones. And it's easier to prove that often the investigators can just go to the third party and ask if this particular document or particular promise or something like that was made fraudulently. And if the third party says it was, that in itself may be sufficient evidence. We see fraud both in the procurement context as well as the execution context. It's been eye-opening over the past decade or so working in this area to see the levels of fraud that sometimes our potential contractors will try to get by in the procurement process. Often in a World Bank bid, there are certain things that need to be submitted, including bid securities, bid guarantee documents, those types of things. And those will sometimes be dummied up by potential contractors. Also, there usually is some level of experience that has to be shown and companies will simply lie about the experience they might have had for a construction contract in sub-Saharan Africa. There may be the need to show that a company has successfully completed five similar contracts in Africa over the past decade. And companies may have no such experience and make up all the five relevant contracts, or they might have contracts that just aren't exactly the same. They might not be in Africa. They might not be the size that is needed, and they will not just make their experience up out of whole cloth, but will tweak it so that it fits what is needed better. In the execution phase, sometimes a fraud where a company perhaps wins a contract totally legitimately, but while executing the contract may submit false invoices, false claims, etc., and they simply lie about what they have been doing and get paid for it, that's fraud as well. Corrupt practice, that is the offering, giving, receiving, or soliciting directly or indirectly anything of value to influence improperly the actions of another party. In these cases, we will see things like often in a World Bank procurement, the actual decision on which company will receive a contract is based on a bid evaluation committee's recommendation. So there will be bribes paid to a member or members of a bid evaluation committee to either select a particular company or maybe to knock out competitors who may have the right qualifications. This can come in the form of payments ahead of time, or it can come in the form of kickbacks after the fact, after a company may be successful. We've also found corruption not necessarily to win, but to get information early. So say perhaps a consultant could be a target of bribery to draft those technical specifications in a particular way that may favor one particular company, or maybe even just to give a particular company early access to those specs so that company can be working on its bid for months and months while other companies may only have a brief period of time to do that. Collusive practice is any arrangement between two or more parties designed to achieve an improper purpose, including to influence improperly the actions of another party. With collusive practice, we will find instances of bid rigging or bid rotation schemes. So where maybe in that area, you're not going to get huge multi nationals are going to come in and try to bid on those contracts. It's mostly going to be local companies. There may only be five companies in the area that really could do this kind of work. Those companies might get together and decide, well, there's enough contracts here for all of us to wet our beaks. So why don't we agree that you will get contracts one in 10, you'll get contracts two and nine, et cetera, et cetera. And the bids that are submitted are not actual legitimate competitive bids because all of the companies have agreed who's going to win ahead of time.
We'll also see collusion in the bid evaluation process where maybe there's no proof of a bribe being paid to get the access to the specs early, but the specs are just provided early. Someone could be a relative, someone could be a friend, and they don't necessarily get paid off, but they provide early access or information. The collusion is between person on the inside as well as a company, and they have colluded to give an improper advantage to one particular company. Coercive practice. To be honest, this is relatively rare. <laughs> Only about 1% of our cases have been coercive practice. This one involves impairing or harming or threatening to impair or harm directly or indirectly any party or the property of the party to influence improperly the actions of a party. So this involves threats either to someone's physical safety or financial threats that are related in any way to a World Bank financing. One example in this one, which I think can hit home, is we had a case where a non-local company was planning on bidding for a particular contract and had been successful in similar contracts over the years. The representative of that non-local company was contacted by a local company, as well as a public official who was going to be involved in the procurement, and was invited out for drinks. Now, thankfully, that particular non-local representative was a little suspicious because he'd been in the country for years and never been invited out for drinks before. Uh, So when he went to the bar or the restaurant, he kept his iPhone running, recording the conversation. Conversation involved threats to him, his company, maybe even his family, that if they were to bid for this particular contract, there would be consequences. Thankfully, because of that recording, we were able to sanction the local company for engaging in that course of practice. And the last one that we have at the World Bank Group is obstructive practice. Now, this one is not exactly the same as the other cross-debarring MDBs. So it is not one that we will cross the bar on, but it essentially involves two potential types of obstruction. Substantive obstruction, where a company, when it is under investigation by our investigators at INT, destroy evidence smash a server, they'll shred documents, etc. Or they will lead INT down a total black hole by claiming that the misconduct was by someone else, etc., etc. The other type of obstruction can be essentially actions taken to materially impede the exercise of audit rights. World Bank has the audit rights on any contract that company wins. If a company will take steps to impede that audit from even happening at all, that can be obstruction as well. As Jamie mentioned, these particular sanctionable practices are unique to the cross-debarring banks. What other sanctionable practices are out there and how do they compare to the World Bank's definition? I had a question for Jamie. He mentioned at the beginning of this podcast the potential confusion with the semantics here, the word sanction that the World Bank has adopted from an early age and because of the association that most people have when they talk about sanctions. You mentioned the classic UN or EU or US sanctions against, whether it's Ukraine, Iran, etc. So I was just wondering what your view on the language used, Jamie, as far as the World Bank's concerned. It's a great question. And some of the other cross-borrowing entities have used the language of prohibited practices. With us, there has, over the years, as the system has become more understandable by more stakeholders, I think there is an understanding that it is not sanctions in the economic context. So we haven't changed the overall wording. 
but we have done things such as my position was originally called the evaluation officer or EO, and the office was called the Office of Evaluation and Suspension, OES. That was changed about seven or eight years ago to be the suspension and debarment officer. SDO and OSD, the Office of Suspension and Debarment, to give more clarity on what we actually do. And you'll notice that the S isn't for sanction, it's for suspension, because one of the parts we do, which I didn't mention, when my office does make a recommendation for a sanction, at that point, we automatically temporarily suspend the company, which means that they're not publicly debarred. They're put on an internal list where during the process of the case, during their right to appeal, potentially up to the sanctions board, they will be just temporarily suspended internally, which could become public after the case has gone through. So what do we do in my office? We suspend and debar. So that's why we changed the name. I think it is certainly a fair point that sanctions can be potentially confusing. And I think that's why some of the institutions have gone with prohibited practices. That's really interesting. Going back to Alice's question, the EBRD, whether they are sanctional practices or prohibited practices, they have two others. They've got theft and misuse of EBRD resources or assets. The Asian Development Bank goes even further. I think it's probably got the longest list of prohibited practices across the NDB community. Firstly, abuse, which is defined as theft, waste, or improper use of assets related to ADB-related activity. It's also got conflict of interest. And thirdly, violations of ADB sanctions. So that's interesting in its own right. Fourthly, retaliation against whistleblowers or witnesses. And lastly, the kind of catch-all one, other violations of ADB anti-corruption policies. So that's just to give an idea of some of the other practices that are listed in the relevant documents of other NDBs. Jamie, if I could ask you, you mentioned earlier that the World Bank is part of the cost debarment network. How does that work exactly? Yeah, this has been something which I think has been a very important development in the space about 10 years ago, where the four at the time largest regional multilateral development banks, the Inter-American Development Bank for North and South America, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development for Europe, the Asian Development Bank for Asia, and the African Development Bank for Africa, those other four banks, as well as the World Bank Group, agreed to essentially recognize each other's debarments as long as that sanction involves a debarment for over a period of one year. So a shorter period of debarment will not be recognized. And as long as it is a debarment for one of those four sanctional practices that I mentioned, fraud, corruption, collusion, or coercion, it is close to automatic. There is an opt-out clause if one of the banks has a particular reason to not recognize one of the other bank's debarments, which is relatively rare. This agreement took a lot of time for the different parties to get to an agreement on it. And the reasoning on it was that there had been some situations beforehand where a company that was proven to have have engaged in particularly egregious conduct had been debarred by, say, the World Bank, and it made news and media all around the region where the misconduct had occurred, and the company would turn around, and although it might have been debarred by the World Bank for five, ten years, it would then get very similar contracts for the same kind of things that it had been engaging in misconduct in relation to with one of the regional banks, and vice versa, of course. And there was a view that that didn't look good. It would be a good thing for the different MDBs to cross the bar as long as it was for the same conduct, so the definitions are the same, and each one had a similar enough system. That's where it's really important to point out that all of those five MDBs have very similar systems. They're not identical, 
but they are very similar in that there is an investigative authority. All of these organizations have a similar two-tier sanction system with relatively independent decision makers with a right to an appeal that gives some level of due process and fairness to companies and individuals that have been accused of misconduct. So because of that similarity in the systems as well as identical definitions for those four sanctionable practices, it was agreed that we will recognize each other's sanctions. Thank you, Jamie. Alex, what are the consequences of debarment for a respondent company? Well, traditionally, you look at what's right in front of you. And the obvious one is you're debarred from bidding on projects funded by that MDB. That was the initial advice that many companies were given, and that was the extent of it. Now, of course, that isn't correct anymore. It's not accurate because, as Jamie said, we have the cross-debarment agreement. So the next step is that potentially subject to those conditions that Jamie's gone through, you are facing debarment from all. Then it goes even further. Even an institution, an international financial institution, a regional MDB perhaps, that hasn't signed the cross-debarment document as such, could still look up the published list of debarred entities and decide it's not going to do business with you. And then it goes beyond the world of MDBs. If your business relies on aid agencies, USA, for example, or DFID, I say DFID, it's changed now, isn't it? It's now the Foreign and Commonwealth Development Office. But if, for example, that's part of your income or some of the money that funds projects that you bid on, they will also informally, if you like, put you on their blacklist. And it goes even further. It can be any kind of domestic financial services. They might look at these lists when doing due diligence. They may not even have to look at the list specifically. It may just be part of their system. They input the name of the company, the registration or the name of the individual, and it pops up. It could be something as trivial as a mortgage application for an individual, the director of the company who's been debarred as well as a company, thinks nothing of it, and then suddenly they are having their own difficulties for something that's completely unrelated to the business. So the risks and the impact is far greater than what was initially the case perhaps 10, 12, 15 years ago. It's worth mentioning, I think, the risk of criminal referral or referral to domestic agencies, whether they're criminal or regulatory as well. So that whole aspect of domestic regulation, including the police, is part and parcel of the risk associated with being debarred by one of these MDBs. Thank you, Alex. A question for both of you now. We've talked about a very rigid set of rules around cross-debarment and sanctionable practices. What are your views on whether or not this definition will expand to include other potentially targeted sanctionable practices that are not currently within the definition? And is that a good thing? Jamie, would you like to answer first? Sure. I think there have been some discussions informal about potentially including other definitions beyond the four that are currently cross-debarrable. Obstructive practices, all of the other MDBs also have an obstructive practices definition and it's quite similar. It is an identical. So I think that may be one that would be easiest to potentially recognize among all the MDBs. Different institutions may have different reasons because of their business models where there might be more risk of these other sanctionable practices at the other entities, but you certainly could see there being additional cross-debarable sanctionable practices. I know at the World Bank, there may have been a view that a lot of the other potential sanctionable practices like theft, etc., may be covered already by some of our other definitions, particularly fraud. As I said, when I was going through them, they're rather broad definitions. An example of this is conflict of interest. There could be a separate sexual practice just for conflict of interest. But in our experience, we've had quite a few cases 
where the actual nub of the misconduct was that there was a conflict of interest. But why did it matter? Because the bidding documents may have said if a company has a conflict of interest, they must disclose it. And the company instead either omitted from disclosing it or simply said, we have no conflict of interest, depending, of course, on the particular facts of the case and what the conflict may or may not have been. That can be fraud. So we may be able to fit some of these other ones into the more broader definitions in fraud, corruption, collusion. But I absolutely could see potentially there being an expansion to the cross-borrowable definitions over the years. Thank you, Jamie. Alex, from the external point of view, what are your views? A couple of things from me. What Jamie's just said is really important. And the context here is these administrative systems. When a criminal lawyer hears the word fraud, they react from a criminal perspective and fraud involves dishonesty and intent. But in the World Bank system, fraud can be reckless. It's criminal terminology, but it's not a criminal system. Not all the criminal elements of fraud need to be satisfied, and it's not beyond reasonable doubt. And so because of that, that helps to explain why fraud, insofar as the World Bank's concerned, is wider and does cover the elements of theft or conflict of interest, etc. So I think that's the first point. Uh, Secondly, we talked about the sharp evolution of this whole framework, and there has undoubtedly been obvious direction of travel. If we look at the 2006 Uniform Framework for Preventing, Combating Fraud and Corruption, that was signed by the five main MDBs, as well as the IMF and the EIB, and that illustrates their efforts to coordinate all of their investigations. Then in 2010, we've got the Agreement for Mutual Enforcement. So there is harmonization, if you like, and cooperation, but there is a limit to that. And this is not a criticism. This, I think, is just a statement of fact that notwithstanding their status as international organizations, each of these institutions has a historical, cultural, legal, regional, political background that differs. Some of them have got different mandates even to complicate matters, for example, the EBRD. And when you take into consideration the different cultures, the experience of the people running human character as well and lobbying, the risks that they each have, they might have identified different risks, and what they consider to be best practices, you will get better cooperation and coordination and harmonization. But there is a limit to that. And I think that limit doesn't reflect badly in the system, but it means that I think they are unlikely to agree on everything going forward. Even if in the next few years, we might see a convergence towards one particular area, that may change. In relatively recent terms, we've got the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank and the New Development Bank, or the BRICS Bank as well, both Chinese-based MDBs. So this ever-changing landscape of MDBs probably suggests that we're not going to get to a stage where all the definitions are the same, all of the practices are the same, and all of the procedures and processes are the same. Jamie, anything to add to that? No, I think that's very well said. As Alex said, the convergence is without a doubt there. But I don't think we're in any way close to a overarching list that all international financial institutions will be signing on to necessarily in agreeing on exact definitions. That I don't see anytime soon, but could absolutely see more of the newer MDBs joining on, perhaps more definitions being agreed to. I absolutely could see that at some point. Jamie, having talked about the consistency of sanctionable practices, if we move to the end of the process, to maintain consistency of sanctionable outcome generally, the World Bank has sanctions guidelines. Can you please tell us about those? 
for my role in determining a potential sanction for a company or individual that I've decided there is sufficient evidence that they've engaged in a sanctional practice. The sanctioning guidelines are one of the most important tools that we look at, and we certainly are using it in every single case where we find sufficient evidence. And these sanctioning guidelines are public. They are absolutely available on our website, and we make sure to send them to every respondent when we do decide to recommend a sanction. They set out essentially a baseline sanction, the World Bank Group, our baseline sanction is is a debarment with conditional release for a three-year period. Now, debarment with conditional release is one of a number of sanctions that we can apply. What does debarment with conditional release mean? That means that a company is debarred for a period of time the baseline is three years. And after three years, the company can get off our public department list, but only if that company has met certain conditions, which usually involve some form of a compliance program. And who decides if the company has met those conditions? It is our integrity compliance officer, who is Lisa Miller, who has many years of experience in this area and also in the compliance space. And what she will do is after a sanction is put into place, she will contact the company or individual and essentially say, those big bad investigators investigated you, that sanctions officer or sanctions board recommended a sanction, but now I'm here to help. And she will help the company hopefully be able to meet those conditions after the period of time of its sanction and get off the list. Now, all companies don't. If the company doesn't engage with Lisa at all or simply is unable to meet the conditions, that the company might stay on the list for a longer period of time, including potentially forever. We can also, if there are certain mitigating factors, do a conditional non-debarment, which means a company is not debarred. So they are not on our debarment list. They can still get World Bank contracts, but... They have to meet certain conditions over a period of time, usually, again, involving compliance-related matters. And if they do not meet those conditions, then that non-debarment will convert into a debarment. There also can be a flat debarment. A flat debarment essentially means you're debarred for a certain period of time. When that time period runs out, you're off the list, no matter what. And then there also can be restitution which may involve some form of financial amount being paid, usually to the borrowing country. And that's been relatively rare. We've only had that happen in about 10 or 12 cases. Or there can be a letter of reprimand, which is a slap on the wrist to say, you did something bad, but we're not going to sanction you with anything besides this letter at this point. That is the array of sanctions which we can apply, but the vast majority involve debarment with conditional release because it is our baseline. And that three-year period that is the baseline can be increased or decreased depending on an array of mitigating and aggravating factors. Aggravating factors that we see often may be the involvement of high-level management of the company. A fraudulent list of experiences was submitted in a bid, and it wasn't just the mid-level manager who was preparing this bid who decided to make this up. There was involvement or at least approval from on high that the presidency, etc., of the company was involved in okaying the submission of these fake experience documents in order to hopefully win the contract. There could be a repeated pattern of misconduct, that there was not just one bribe paid, there were multiple instances of bribes paid over a period of time. There could be severity, essentially, of the misconduct. Because of this particular misconduct, the bank's project, that is really what matters here, whether the project is effective or not, that because of the misconduct, it affected the project as a whole. Those are a few of the aggravating factors. Mitigating factors, though, where the particular sanction can be decreased could be cooperation. That's a big one, that the company helped INT with the investigation. They may have admitted 
the misconduct. But even if they didn't admit, they helped. They provided witnesses. They provided documents, et cetera. So that can be a big mitigating factor. Another one can be compliance programs so that a company perhaps didn't catch this particular misconduct, but they either at first already had in some compliance programs that were pretty helpful or since the misconduct happened, they've really made efforts to implement controls that may stop this from happening again. If it looks like it was one or two bad actors, that those bad actors have either had some form of punishment or have even potentially been terminated. Those types of things can significantly reduce a sanction. What my office does when I'm looking at a case, and to give an idea of the volume of cases we have at the bank, it fluctuates from year to year depending on a variety of things. But we usually have around 50 products that come to my office per year. And that involves both sanctions cases where I have to make a decision and a recommended sanction, as well as some Last year, there were about 30-odd cases and about 20-odd settlements. Some years, there's more settlements than that. Some years, there's less settlements than that. But it usually is about 50 products. And whenever I make a decision that there is sufficient evidence on a case and I recommend a sanction, I take a fairly mathematical approach in looking at the guidelines where I'll apply the three-year baseline and then we'll look at aggravating factors and maybe move it up by a year or two or three or even more. Uh, And then we'll look at mitigating factors and maybe move it down. On average, we've looked at this over the years since the two-tier system went into place in 2007. We've had over 700 sanctions and on average, It ends up being around the three years. It may be a little bit lower, (laughs) but it ends up on being because there are some of them that get some companies will end up with a seven, eight, nine year sanction because they might get involved in fraud and corruption, fraud, corruption and collusion, or there might be significant aggravating factors. But then other ones may end up with either not a debarment at all or a debarment for only a six month period because there are some mitigating factors that they will make sure to bring to our attention. Thank you, Jamie. Alex, how does this usually get applied in practice? Well, first, I just want to mention the rationale for having the debarment conditional release as a baseline, because I think that's important, as opposed to, for example, fixed-time debarment, or as Jane referred to it, flat debarment. And that's really that it's an easy win for the MDB, because the period of time is the same, but there's an added incentive and also obligation on the respondent to do something else, apart from just wait it out, if they want to come off debarment when that initial period ends. So that really places a greater emphasis on rehabilitation and that encourages the sanctioned firms, respondent entities to adopt adequate, effective policies and measures that, and this is key, that make it less likely that they will commit such a sanctionable practice again. Alice, in terms of your question, firstly, it's absolutely vital for any system that wants to reach the minimum standard of due process that publishes these guidelines. Because of course, if they're not published, even if they exist, then there is no transparency and there is no obvious consistency. And that is part of the strength in the system that at the sanctions board level, the decisions are published. But on top of having published decisions where you can see the reasoning of a judge either upholding the SDO's determination or overruling it or increasing it. So you've got the reasoning in the judgments or the decisions, but on top of that, at a much more basic level and really important level, you've got the publication of the starting point and these mitigating and aggravating factors. What that does is it increases transparency. So publishing your sanctions guidelines that are thought through and well presented is one important part of ensuring that the system strength is there. And that benefits 
all parties. It benefits the World Bank as the regulator. It also benefits the respondent companies. That's very well said because that really is the effort that's been made increasing over the past decade or so to make it less of a black box than perhaps it had been previously, particularly in the World Bank Sanctions Committee days, where the decision that a company may have seen, even internally, forget about published decision, may have been, you know, a letter with a one paragraph description of what the company was facing may have been permanent debarment (laughs) forever. And the reasoning was not very transparent and the decision makers were not independent. So as the systems at the different MDBs have developed over the years, there's been a real effort while the actual individual case is ongoing. It's important to keep things confidential. Once a decision is made, as much transparency as possible. So three areas. If there is a settlement at the World Bank, there is always a press release that will describe the misconduct and what the sanction is. If there is a case in the two-thirds of sanctions cases that do not get appealed, the respondent ends up accepting my recommendation. We do not publish my full determination, but we publish a relatively short summary that is public on our website that describes the misconduct relatively briefly, but then describes the aggravating and mitigating factors which may have been applied in coming to the sanction. And then if a company does appeal to the sanctions board and the sanctions board looks at the case to know And it's important also to point out there can be a hearing at the sanctions board level, which there is not at my level. At my level, it is only on the papers, essentially, at the sanctions board stage. As Alex pointed out, they may make an increase on my recommended sanction, or they perhaps might go lower, or they could give the exact same, because some things might come out at that hearing that may be helpful to the respondent, but also that might not necessarily be helpful. And at that stage, the sanctions board decisions are entirely public that give a really fully reasoned description of the misconduct, but then how the sanctions board went through its analysis. Jamie, you mentioned oral hearings. My understanding is it's an oral hearing as a right. It's pretty much automatic, according to the rules, if either party requests. And therefore, it amounts to a de facto guaranteed or hearing, which again is relevant to the the due process argument as a whole. And no other MDB has a system in place, to my knowledge at least, where a respondent company, or it could be an individual, if they wish to have an oral hearing, they don't have one as of right. Whereas at the World Bank, in practice, that's what happens. Yes. And it is important, as you said, that either side, the bank investigators or the respondent can request a hearing. It's not a full trial of any sort, but it is the opportunity absolutely for the sanctions board members to ask lots of questions and really get to the nub of what happened. But then particularly when coming to a recommended sanction, how serious is the company about getting to the right place afterwards and taking actions that may have been mitigating? I'm sure that can come out at a hearing in ways that perhaps may not come out on the papers. It's also, of course, good fun because you get to C-I-N-T face to face. <laughs> so if we can now turn to the question of settlement. Jamie, you've mentioned this a few times. How does the World Bank approach settlement? Is it encouraged? This is something that was very interesting in my personal experience because I was an American attorney in private practice before. I did not go to trial in nine years of private practice. And that is fairly common, of course, in the U.S. system where both civil cases as well as criminal cases usually end up in some form of non-trial resolution. 
I was surprised when I came to the bank in 2010 that there were not settlements. There had been at that time one settlement, which was done through an informal process, essentially. And there was a view after that, well, for fairness purposes, maybe we should put in place a process where we could allow that opportunity to everyone. And as I said, I was a little bit surprised at first that it didn't exist at all. And then I was surprised that as an American lawyer, that it took a little while, like uh, often things do at multilateral institutions, whether you're talking about a World Bank or a United Nations, sometimes it can be like herding cats and they will eventually get to a place of agreement, but it took a little while. And it was very interesting for me as an American lawyer to hear from colleagues around the bank who were from other national systems where the idea of going to the accusing authority and saying, I did this (laughs) and how can we get to a negotiated resolution would be crazy totally anathema. You just would not do that. So it was very interesting for me. And just in general, this is one of the great things about working at the World Bank is you get the input from folks from all around the world who may have very different contexts that they're coming from, and you're not applying any kind of national law. This is World Bank law that we are applying, which can be constructed with the input from systems all over the world. Even in my own office, I'm very lucky to have three staff attorneys who work with me who are fantastic. One is American, one is from Romania, and one is from Kazakhstan. That we have two legal consultants who are attorneys who work for us as needed, one from Tajikistan and one from Greece who are fantastic. And then the other staff in my office, administrative assistant and our paralegal are from Denmark and China. So it's a very international institution as a whole and then even my small independent office. So back to the question about settlements, eventually an approved process was put in place with our first settlements coming in in fiscal year 2011. And so since then, they have been encouraged. Absolutely. In every case now, INT will let the company know as part of the investigation that a negotiated resolution is possible. I wouldn't say they've necessarily increased every year. It's kind of gone up and down just because the context of the cases in any given year may be different. But, you know, we've had from 11 settlements in 2011 up to a high of 26 settlements in 2017 to 22 last year. So companies and individuals may come to an agreement with INT to negotiate a resolution. Usually this will involve some sanction. It may not be a period of debarment. We've had some settlements for conditional non-debarments, even a few involving letters of reprimand. Usually as part of the settlement, the company or individual will have to least acknowledge that the misconduct happened and agree to a set of facts describing the misconduct and then agree to a recommended sanction. INT and the company or individual will negotiate it and then our World Bank Group General Counsel, Sandy Coro, has to approve that recommended sanction. And then I have a very limited role, but kind of an important double check where I look only at two things. First, that there is nothing that looks like the company or individual was in any way forced into this. In every settlement, they will submit an affidavit that will say where the company or individual will say, I was not forced into this. Then also whether or not the sanction which has been agreed to is generally within the bank sanctioning guidelines. And the sanctioning guidelines can go from a letter of reprimand all the way to a potential permanent department. So generally, they will fit into that. We've had 166 settlements since they came into play in 2011. I've had a part in reviewing all of them. On a handful of them, there will be questions or reasons why we might go back to the legal department or go back to INT and see some things that might have to be tweaked before it is formalized. But generally, they will be approved and then the sanction will go into effect and there will be a press release that uh, describes the misconduct and the sanction that has been agreed to. Jamie, if I could stay with you for a moment. 
From the World Bank's perspective, what should respondent companies be doing and how should they be behaving while engaging with the settlement process? Sure. As I said, there there has to be some acknowledgement or perhaps even an admission that the misconduct happened. Uh, so a company is not going to be allowed to enter into an agreement without at least acknowledging that. If it's a department with conditional release, they will have to agree to certain compliance conditions that they will have to meet along the way with our integrity compliance officer checking that. And they also have to essentially help INT with any more information about what happened? Because often our cases aren't one-off. For example, there was a fairly recent line of cases involving numerous countries where a World Bank consultant that had been hired to help draft specifications and review bids related to medical device projects throughout a number of countries. That consultant had been bribed by a number of companies from different countries to rig the specification related to particular projects and particular contracts so that they would help the companies that had paid him bribes. Though that was a line of cases that all were related together, there were some companies that settled related to that, and they had to agree to help INT provide any information related to perhaps other companies they knew that had maybe engaged in that or how the scheme worked related to this particular consultant. So that's an example of the kind of help that they have to provide going forward. Turning to you, Alex, how does this work from a respondent company's point of view? And what should they keep in mind when they're looking to engage with this process? The approach to settlements is fascinating and it reflects all the cultural influences at the various MDBs. I mean, I've no doubt that part of the reason for the World Bank's approach to settlements is linked to it being headquartered in the US. There's an obvious North American inference there. And that's one of the considerations, I think, that respond companies need to look at. It's all very well having your own expectations and approach. You might be a British company, a Vietnamese company, or an Argentinian company, but you also need to look at the MDB in question. And it's not just its sanctions procedures or equivalent documents. It's also its practice. Some of the settlement aspects not regulated in the same way that the two-tier system is regulated with rules of procedures. This is also the practice. It's also the practice of the lawyers who are representing the company. So that's really, really important. Jamie touched on the nuance in terms of the oversight of his office. And it is interesting to see that Jamie does have an oversight on settlements, although I think his words were it's limited, but in any event, it reflects an important checks and balance. To put that in context, so the World Bank side settlements are encouraged. Let's look at a neighboring institution that is a stone's throw away in central DC, the Inter-American Development Bank. They have a civil law perspective of settlements. Settlements are a recent thing there, so nothing like the sort of experience that Jamie and his unit have in terms of settlements, as well as INT, of course. And settlements, they are the exception, they're not the rule. But conversely, the SDO has what we can describe as a greater role insofar as the settlement's concerned. The Office of Institutional Integrity, so INT's equivalent, OII, needs to make the request, but the SDO operates, or the whole settlement operates within a defined window by the SDO. So it's looking beyond the rules and looking at the practice of the institutions and also following the trends because a lot of different parties have issues with settlements. There's a relatively important NGO lobby against them because they are not transparent. The culpability of the respond company isn't splashed across the internet. And because of that, people have different perspectives. 
But if the purpose of the whole system is to crack down on corrupt practices, etc., and to get some results, there is absolutely a place for settlements. The question is one of balance. And so respondent companies can't just look at one MDB and assume that they're all the same. And again, this goes back to the theme I think Jamie and I have touched on more than once, that notwithstanding all the differences and the same direction of travel for most of these institutions, there will always remain differences. And that's what makes this area so fascinating. Thank you, Alex. That seems like a good point to start to draw our conversation to a close. Before we finish, I'd like to ask if you have any final messages. Jamie? The message I try to give when I speak publicly on the system is transparency. I really do try to highlight that, that we have from the start of, at least when I've been involved the past decade, but then particularly growth over the years, we do try to describe as much as we can about what we're actually doing. Do not want to be, as I said, a black box. So my office has put out a number of publications, which can be found on worldbank.org website related to what has gone on in the sanction system over the years, types of sanctions, descriptions of some of the cases, etc., numbers of sanctions over the years, which we put out over the years. We have a joint annual report that we put out that has lots of information, lots of data. We try to give as much transparency as possible to show the independence of the system, the independence when I make a decision. There is no one telling me what I have to do. You could envision perhaps that there might be some World Bank contractors, different stakeholders within the bank might really want to be sanctioned because they've been troublemakers uh, over the years. But there could be other ones that maybe have been viewed as good contractors and done good work, but they've engaged in misconduct and maybe some folks wouldn't want them to be sanctioned. No one can put that type of input to me in making my decision. It's totally independent. And we try to give a two-tier system with as much due process and fairness as possible. That being said, it's relatively new. As Alex said, the bank as a whole has been around since 1944. Taking the issue of corruption seriously via this internal sanction system is 25 years in the making and this particular system only a little over 10 years. So over the years, as different stakeholders, internal and external, have come up with different ideas or ways that perhaps the system can be tweaked, we've really made an effort to what we hope is improve the system and hopefully that will be ongoing. Thank you, Jamie. And Alex, any final thoughts? Final thought from me, there's no doubt that the World Bank is a formidable regulator. It is an entity that you have to take seriously. Nowadays, a few would argue against that. The question is whether it provides a framework whereby those accused of serious misconduct, prohibited practices, sanctional practices, whatever you want to call them, can utilise to ensure that they have independent oversight to make sure that things are done properly. And all those recent changes that we've discussed, I think, answer the question in the affirmative. And irrespective of how challenging it might feel to be against such a huge entity in what is administrative proceedings, if the tools are used properly, I think that the framework and the system provided can be used properly to ensure that rights are respected. That continues to evolve for the last few years, at least certainly since 2016, where the sanctions board has an all external membership. I think that was a key step because that really turned the sanctions framework into a system that is, I would say, on par with the domestic equivalents of developed nations. 
Jamie, Alex, thank you very much for your thoughts and insights. Unfortunately, we have to bring this episode to a close. For more tips on how to get the best out of your relationship with an international financial institution, or for more information or assistance, please go to www.rpc.co.uk forward slash unspoken hyphen giants. And follow us on Twitter at Unspoken Giants. Please do join us for the other episodes in the Unspoken China series, where we are joined by representatives of the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the Caribbean Development Bank, the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the European Investment Bank, the Global Fund, the Inter-American Development Bank, the New Development Bank, and the Nordic Investment Bank. RPC would like to thank podcast manager Josh McDonald and our expert panel, Robert Waterson, Alex Haynes, and John Kendrick QC. Original score was composed and produced by Insider Music, who also produced this podcast series. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. You can listen to our other Unspoken Giants episodes wherever good podcasts are found. hear a full, uninterrupted version of our podcast theme, go to Instagram at Insider Music and follow the link in bio.